Okay, so for uh, keeping things cool with IoT, I'm Todd Day with James Brems and Brem and Associates. Uh, I've got a panel here. What I'm going to try to do is focus as little as possible on anything that I may know, because I'm told a lot I know nothing. Uh, but to introduce a few people that are in the space that uh, uh, do a lot with uh, keeping things cool, uh, I have uh, Mike Sack with Terracode. Uh, Mark Josephson with Chorus Life uh, Science Monitoring, and Jeff Newman with CalAmp. Uh, and so this session is focusing a lot on uh, real-time temperature monitoring uh, for quality assurance and uh, cold chain. So the first question, I guess, I'll just get it started. Uh, all three of you have different customer solutions. Uh, and business models. So let's just start off. Maybe each of you uh, tell us a little bit about your solution specifically. Maybe start with. Okay. So um, my name is Jeff Newman. I work for CalAMP. Um, CalAMP provides uh, full solutions, particularly in the transportation logistics space. And then one of the segments that we focus in on the group that I work in is on supply chain. And so in a side of our supply chain, we can either look at the solution with respect to cold chain as the trailer and the cab are a connected solution um, to understand what's going on with the shipment. And we can also look at cargo independently, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about technology, but fundamentally, we can look at cargo, whether that's at the pallet level, the tote level. Um, we do a lot with people that are doing uh, insulated shipments anywhere in the world. And so our solutions and technology can effectively keep the integrity of that data as well as provide real-time visibility in certain aspects of it throughout the entire journey. Mark, do you want to? Yeah, Mark Josephson, Chorus Life Sciences. We're a spinoff of another company that did uh, wider range, and now we're this division is focused strictly on life sciences, primarily medical research. And what we do is we monitor the uh, ultra-cold freezers and the liquid nitrogen tanks and the minus 20 freezers uh, for research institutions because of the tremendous value of the contents. Usually represents decades of research that could be lost if the freezer fails. And so that's the key thing we do. Uh, my name is Mike Sack. I'm the CEO of Terracode. Uh, we have a slightly uh, different approach. Uh, we are more of a services provider in the IoT space, and we found some success over the past few years working with companies that produce cooling uh, devices, products, coolers, refrigeration systems, to help them turn their products into a service. So we talk about something uh, that we call cold air as a service, and that helps clients who are selling and trying to sell uh, products into supermarkets or other facilities. You mentioned pharma. We have some pharma clients uh, to change their model, to go from selling a product to actually selling a service, and the monitoring becomes key, being able to give them a performance guarantee. And we actually work with insurance companies that will underwrite insurance uh, in the event that there's a loss to cover uh, any failures in the monitoring process. Hey, Greg. Great. Uh, so just jumping in on the next question, uh, what IoT technologies are each of you sort of currently using? So uh, what kind of sensors, what kind of connectivity are you seeing? I'm sure it probably varies based on the different products, but maybe tell us a little bit, and we can start with you, Mike, about the, the different sure. types of technologies. Sure. So uh, we did a project with a company that uh, manufactures coolers that go in the back of supermarkets. Uh, in order to turn it into a service, not only did we need to monitor uh, temperature, uh, but we needed to monitor the operation of the refrigeration system, 
So we have sensors on the compressor, um, and we're monitoring ambient temperature outside the cooler as well. Uh, we've got a camera installed so we can monitor if the airflow is actually flowing. We have um, door sensors and light sensors and so forth. I think in total there's 11 different sensors that we've implemented, and using those 11 sensors we get a picture of what's going on with the cooler and enough data over time to be able to predict if something's going to go in a negative trend. Um, we're focused mostly on um, temperature, obviously, and so we, we build our own temperature sensors, um, and we have, have, based on some customers, they bought door sensors with the freezer door left open by accident, um, and we're monitoring electricity now to predict freezer failure, because if, if a compressor is uh, starting to use more electricity uh, than what its baseline was, that's usually a bad sign. Maybe it's just a bad filter, filters need to be cleaned, or maybe the compressor is having problems. So we're migrating into some more things, but they all have to do with monitoring freezer health and knowing that we have to do something with the contents. So one of the technologies that we've worked with for the last several years has been enabling Bluetooth low energy. And so we've modified that technology to effectively work a lot like what TempTales does in the market today, which are primarily USB stick data loggers, but they, what their purpose in life is, is to record the temperature of the cargo as it goes from typically the point of pack all the way to the point of final delivery, and then they use that temperature data profile to validate the shipment. So what we've done is we've taken and, and automated a big portion of that process where we've built these, effectively they're like Bluetooth tiles, and they allow for them to be installed into the packaging or the coolers or at the point of pack. Their job is to log temperature within, effectively in this profile, and then as it comes in range of a couple of different other technologies, it can either auto-synchronize that data and upload it to the back-end application, or it can effectively continue to log until it gets to the end of its journey. So we've had some really good success in the pharma space. Um, we're starting to do a lot in cryogenics where uh, shipments go in and out of coverage. There's not always a, around uh, a handset or a device that can read it, but you still need that data integrity and you want to automate the process to upload that information. But effectively, we, we've taken the combination of cellular Wi-Fi, Bluetooth technology, and a wide range of temperature sensors, and we, we're effectively trying to help companies automate that collection process throughout the entire journey of the shipment. Okay, and so I guess I'll follow up with you, Jeff, uh, on a quick question. So uh, in terms of customers, showing them uh, what, what those sensors can do, what type of services you can provide, how do you go in and, and talking with the customers? You know, why do they need that service? What is it that they can get from that service that maybe they didn't have before? Or how do you go about, I guess, selling them on this is something that you need? Yeah, some of it is a process change and some of it is a requirement in the industry. So if you, particularly if you look at the pharma space, it's a hard requirement that you have temperature control within a uh, set band through the entire journey. And if it ever goes out of that range, you risk not only the shipment, but maybe a combination of shipments. So when we go into customers, what we're trying to do is help them understand how to take what is typically a, a fairly manual process, lots of checks in, in the solution, lots of sensors, and how can they start to automate that process? And not only automate just the data collection on the temperature side, but to provide real-time visibility during parts of the journey. So for instance, in our solution, you can take a centralized communication device. It has its own sensor capability and the tiles around it, and they can auto-synchronize them. That centralized device can give you real-time location. So you can get location visibility where it is. Is it on a plane? Has it gone into the plane? 
Um, is it on the ground? Is it in a car? But you can start to mix those things together. And so it's really a, a part of educating the customer that th they can not only maintain the integrity of their data, but they can get a lot more information about the journey to either protect on the quality side or to start to make improvements in their process in terms of the types of things that they can deliver to the customers. Okay, thanks. So Mark, do you have any? So the easiest customer for us is someone who had a freezer failure. <laughs> yeah. And um, a customer of ours um, who said anyone who hasn't had a freezer failure hasn't been doing this for very long. Freezers are mechanical. They're going to fail. So if you're a large research institution, you have several hundred or thousand uh, of these free, uh, freezers scattered around your campus or throughout your facility, statistically, you're going to lose a couple every year. And so what's the value of those contents? And so anybody who's had a freezer failure and suffered a big loss, they usually have their hands up. They, they find us. Um, a lot of our customers, from word of mouth, someone transfers to a different research institution. They find out these freezers are not being monitored. And then we, we, get, we get those kind of calls. We're now proactively reaching out, usually to like the risk manager in a large uh, uh, research university or something like that someone who's in charge of that and we, we contact them and then um, trade shows, specific trade shows that get researchers there. So it's kind of a push and pull. And uh, Mike, you want to? Sure. Uh, so I want to follow up on what Mark said. So, you know, your approach is you're working directly with the institution who's buying this equipment and they're expending, uh, you know, it's a capital expenditure and they're taking on the ownership of owning and maintaining that equipment and the responsibility when it fails. Right. I'm working on the other side with the manufacturers of these equipment because you know, they sell that freezer to your facility and they walk away, right? Maybe they get called back, but it's rare because they have a, a service provider right. who that the university or the facility works with. So now what people are saying, it's really about some market differentiation to say, we'll not only sell you the freezer, but we'll do it as a, a monthly payment, almost like a lease. So a financing company gets involved. The benefit to the customer, to your customer, is they don't have to worry about the freezers anymore. They have a guarantee that they will stay up and running. They don't need somebody to be paying attention. It's being paid attention for them. And if uh, a failure is, de is detected or a trend towards failure, a service technician is sent out. For the manufacturer, the benefit is a longer term more revenue generating relationship. So instead of selling a, a freezer for how much? $20,000. $20, they're selling a service that over 10 years, uh, 15 years could net them 200000 So it changes the relationship. And when you add insurance into it, and you get the insurance companies who will come in and underwrite the coverage for any loss, it becomes game changing, right? It's a paradigm shift in, in the industry. And that kind of goes into uh, a follow-up question then. Uh, and, and a lot of that depends on you guys seem to do more I industrial. You, you were talking, Mark, about doing some research, organizations, universities, things like that. Uh, are there compliance issues that are involved in, in part of the process with going in and helping ensure some of this? And uh, are there compliance issues? Curious if, if maybe you guys could touch base on that. In our case, absolutely especially in pharma, but then um, we have a lot of the pathology departments. And once they take the samples, they need to store them long-term and so forth. They're usually regulated by either a state agency or by a federal agency. 
and they have to prove that the samples that they've taken have been kept at the proper temperature for years and so we provide those compliance reports for them and we make sure there's also federal and state guidelines on that the customer cannot edit or delete any information and that the reports generated cannot be modified in any way and that the originals can always be produced for the auditor. So compliance is a big deal, but for our customers it depends on what particular area they're in. So if they're in something like pathology or pharma and stuff like that, those are heavily regulated. Compliance is a big area. There's other people, just pure research, no compliance requirements at all. So in our case, it's a mix. Yeah, certainly the pharma space has the most stringent requirements for the document compliance. I will talk a bit about what we're seeing in food. So some of you guys may have heard the Food Safety Management Act, FSMA. We're starting to see that push down of that FSMA requirement, which is the traceability of food all the way back to the point of produce. We're starting to see that be pushed down to the growers now, where before it was really kind of at the food preparation level and where it gets delivered to the end consumer. So there's a whole lot of automation going in, but right now there really aren't any firm compliance regulations other than we're trying to give, from a risk and liability standpoint, we're trying to give the shippers, the growers, and then the receivers of that food as much valuable, accurate information as they can when they make that transfer of the food. But that's another area we expect to see a lot more regulation in terms of compliance, particularly in terms of temperature, humidity, and transport start to roll out here in the next decade or so. Okay. Mike? I would agree. Food chain safety is going to become an increasingly important area of regulation, and consumers are going to want to be able to stand in the supermarket and scan something and know exactly where their food came from and that it was properly kept along its journey to reach them. And even if supermarkets don't exist in the future as we see them today, food delivered to your house, people are still going to want to know the food chain safety protocols that have been employed in its journey. So it doesn't exist today in a hard fashion, to your point, but it's coming. So this is in preparation for it. And I think our parent corporation did a pilot with IBM. They have food trust as one of their verticals that they're going after where we actually tracked food from the plant that produces the hamburger patties in this case through the trucks and into the restaurants that would carry it. And they had a block. IBM was pushing blockchain so that they had from the source to the point of service to the customer, they were able to prove that the temperature was kept accurate the entire time. Yeah, you bring up a couple of good points. In that process, there's a lot of things that have to happen. One is just the instrumentation. The other is particularly in food and safety because a lot of those techniques are different than pharma. Blockchain as a technology and a solution is really coming into play. So all of that data is not only authenticated and controlled in the ledger, but most of the food shipment stuff that we're starting to work with now is heavily focused on the whole digitalization of the transformation journey. So all of that is digitally encrypted. It's handled. It's blockchain controlled. So there's a whole revolution in how all of that information is going to be presented to the people that want to use that from both the compliance and from a quality standpoint. Okay. And in terms of the products that you currently have, you currently have a certain set of solutions and customers. One of the questions I would have is what do you kind of see as future product innovations in your space? What are you 
think is coming next that you could sort of integrate into your products or your services for customers? And I think because a lot of that goes into all of IoT in general, not just you know uh, the the full uh, chain. But what do you see? Maybe just a little insight into how customers have perceived it and are looking to grow beyond what you're currently doing. Mike, you maybe want to? They want me to go first, because <laughs> it's actually, it's a challenging question. So, um, so refrigeration's been around a long time, um, we've, and we, we depend on it, right? I mean, if we didn't have it today, it'd be very difficult for us to make advances in medical sciences, even eat. So, the, and that technology hasn't changed very much. Um, it gets more efficient, uh, they've changed the chemicals that run inside the compressors, uh, but it's still about cooling. The big change is the analysis of it, the tracking of it, the ability to predict if cooling is going to fail. Uh, so we're getting very good at that today. I mean, everyone up here is doing it, and uh, we could all tell stories about how advanced the AI and machine learning is to actually be able to tell you that this device is going to have a failure X days out or X hours out. And so I think as we get better with machine learning and deep learning architecture, um, one of the things that will start to happen is the efficiency side of the story. So right now we're doing experiments where we look at the data of why people go in and out of a cooler, uh, how many times a day they do it, uh, to actually teach our customers how to be more efficient in using it. Because there's actually a cost every time you open the door and go in and out, right? Even if the temperature only goes down one degree. So I think that'll be the next kind of innovation area for us to educate our customers and potentially develop ways to minimize going in and out of, of these refrigeration units to save energy. Um, I quickly think of three things. Number one is what Mike was saying earlier is that um, we're doing primarily retrofit of existing freezers. We've now, it's not public yet, but we, we've worked out a deal with a freezer manufacturer where they're gonna integrate our temperature monitoring right into the system. We're gonna take responsibility for telling all the researchers there's a problem. They don't want that liability. But that's what we do. Um, uh, so that's that's one. The other we talked about was, was trying to get to the area where you can kind of predict failure ahead of time so people have a chance to react, get service in there, uh, move things and so forth. Um, and I, uh, I think over time you're gonna see more integration of sensors into more and more products like refrigeration uh, products just because it makes sense. One of the areas that we're just recently getting into, and this is more into the research area, is different biological samples need to be stored at different temperatures. So minus 65 Celsius is a big deal because that's when F, uh, RNA and DNA will start to degrade over time if they're kept above minus 65. So all the researchers panic when their freezers get to minus 65. So that's like, boom, that's, so um, there's some stuff that has to be kept at uh, liquid nitrogen minus 196, and that's for really long-term, really uh, stable storage and so forth. And what we're finding now is, is you've talked to a freezer manufacturer, what's the variation temperature inside a freezer? A minus 80 freezer, the typical upright one is about seven feet tall, so you have about five to six feet of interior space, about three feet wide, almost three feet deep, so it's a decent amount of volume. We started doing something called temperature mapping where we put 15 different temperature probes inside a freezer. Top shelf, bottom shelf, middle shelf, five spots on each of the shelves. And we mapped the temperature. First time we did it at Columbia, there was a 15 degree Celsius difference between the warmest and the coldest spot. But that, and the front of the display said minus 80. Well, 
It was minus 82 in some places, but it was 15 degrees warmer than that. Well, guess what? Those samples that were in the warm spot, they may have been no good in about a year. And so that in, that's now a, a new big area as the uniformity of temperature and being able to deploy lots of low-cost sensors inside gives them the kind of the in, uh, insight as to what's happening inside the freezer and say, all right, well, this old freezer, we can only keep the really important long-term stuff in the bottom part. Stuff that doesn't matter as much, we'll put in the upper part. Yeah. So in our, in our industry, the, the shipping profiles from the, usually the manufacturer to the distribution center are pretty well defined, and you can build ROI cases to make that work, where the models really break down at what we call the last mile, which is how does food, produce, anything get delivered to the end user? Um, you can use Grubhub as an example, or Uber, where they're trying to really get into the food delivery business, which is, you know, if you needed a, a something delivered to your house, whether it's a pre-cooked meal or uh, just a set of su supplies, how are they going to instrument that? Not just from a location standpoint, but they're going to instrument from a sensor standpoint. So there's a lot of work that's being done with very low-cost sensors, self-powered sensors, sensors that their entire purpose is to last for a very specific part of the journey, and then they're thrown away. And then the pool of drivers, whether that is Uber, Lyft, um, paid drivers, Amazon Prime, they're starting to try and figure out how can they connect the car and the driver in that to allow them to effectively facilitate the sensor information. So I think we're going to see over the next several years a big push um, to how is that last mile solved with, with technology that's in there in the vehicle or in the phone or things that are very low cost that communicate with all of these IoT devices around and then there'll be transactional methods to facilitate that data. But there's a lot of push to try and sensor, for lack of a better term, everything in the cold chain, and then figure out what's the best method to move that back to the application. Okay, and in terms of uh, customers, uh, are there any specific sort of things or demands that customers have that, that when they come to you, and, and obviously each of you have sort of different uh, use cases, customer types, but are there some specific things that they're looking for when they come and that they want to know for sure uh, are, are going to be handled a certain way? What are their concerns? Maybe some of the questions that they have in terms of integrating a product or taking your product and, and going with it and utilizing it. What are the things that they're looking at that sort of differentiate you guys from other competitors that customers are looking for? Because I think that's important with anyone kind of in the IoT space is, is what do customers really need? And so I'm just curious if you guys have some insight into, you know, potentially what customers have maybe specifically been looking for that uh, get creative in IoT. Well, one obvious one is, is in the, uh, this medical area, the loss of research is so incredibly devastating, someone could lose their career. Um, the value of typical can be in the millions of dollars. Um, we had, um, so that that's a, so that notifying people that something is needs paying attention to is really really the key thing. That's really the secret sauce of what we do. So we go way out of our way to for each person. How do you want to get notified? Do you want to get a text message? Do you want to get a phone call? Do you want to get an email? Do you want all three? Do you want different things at different times of day, different days of the week, and so forth? If no one replies, let's say you're out to dinner and your cell phone battery's dead and it's an emergency, who else should we be notifying? Um, should we keep issuing, repeating the alerts and, and sending them out again? So this whole escalation and repetition and so forth, because the key thing is if there's a problem, you want to make sure they're notified. Now the other side of that is you don't want to send out too many. We call it alert fatigue, crying wolf. 
if someone keeps getting these alerts on their cell phone, they're going to turn off their cell phone. <laughs> it's just an annoyance. So you've got to balance that. So I think that's a lot of our customers is finding that right balance between letting them know something really important needs to be taken care of and not annoying them with stuff that's uh, trivial. Yeah, and I would assume something in like that scenario would probably also differ based on the, the person who's responsible for it. So you may have one person at that company that is responsible for making sure that stuff is taken care of. They may want alerts from everywhere, whereas you have someone maybe higher up that only wants an alert and, and in a certain event. It's funny because we deal mostly with major institutions. So the University of Pennsylvania, big, big research area, it's broken down by lab. Each lab, which is anywhere from three to 20 people, has their own procedures. It, there's no uniformity throughout the university. And yet, we have uh, the National Primate Center down in uh, Louisiana, a 22-building campus, it's all regimented, it's all done one way and so forth. So you have to be flexible to treat the way that the customers need it. Jeff, do you want to? So in our industry, the biggest challenge to overcome is operationalization of the technology. So it sounds great that you could put a sensor on something at the point of pack and put it in a shipment. But typically, the people that are doing those pack jobs or loading the trucks aren't there with a laptop or a tablet or a computer logged into a system to, to assemble it. So most of the challenges that we have to overcome with our customers is how can you take stuff that's effectively pre-configured, allow it to be associated with something, we call it one click, effectively in a one click manner, and then if for some reason that association changes, the system can auto-associate itself again. Um, our system allows for a lot of that to be done. You can pre-define the rules of temperature and humidity tags based on their profiles. You can redefine the routes. You can use certain sensors for certain pipes. If things di divert and get reassigned, they can auto-associate their new location. But in almost all of our cases, the people that are doing the work are not looking for more things to have to do to get you the information. They're looking for less. And so everything that we go through with our customers is around logistics. Can you get the, the shipment back? Is it disposable at the end? What's the one-click method? How can we redefine all the routes in the system so that the person that has to load this up and actually make it get to where it needs to start its journey has to do very little in terms of, of process modification into the, into the solution. And so <coughs> we, we come at it from the other side, right, which is, to your point, if you have a university like uh, the U UPenn and you've got 50 labs and they're all running you know, differently and they have different rules about how they're going to respond to these temperature outages, the individual managers are in a position to put the university's research at risk. If you shift it to the other side and you say, cold air is going to be provided to UPenn as a service, and every lab will have the same level of monitoring, and instead of having to worry about somebody being out to dinner when they get the alert, the technician gets the ticket, the person who can come fix the refrigerator, the person whose responsibility it is, uh, you can mitigate some of that response issue that's there. because. IOT creates a lot of noise. We work with, uh, on the other side, on the steam side, which is the opposite of cold, and you know the boilers can send out 50 alerts an hour, and nobody pays attention. The cry wolf thing is absolutely for real. So the more we move towards full automation of detection of a failure and automated uh, response, uh, the industry gets more secure. That's you know kind of where we come down on it. Okay. And uh, one. I guess uh, last thing I just kind of want to see if you had any opinions on it. But you know, one of the things that uh, in some of the other, like healthcare, for example, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about research and things like that. Uh, 
uh, pharma, uh, all the, the medical packaging, everything that's being shipped with what you guys do. Uh, you know, one of the things that in talking with a lot of healthcare providers uh, in terms around HIPAA compliance, security risk assessments, those types of things, you know, one of the biggest uh, sales points, I think, to a lot of the providers is, can you really afford not to? You know, because typically, look at what would happen in the event that something does go bad. Whereas IoT offers a solution to help ensure that it does not ever happen. And typically at a pretty reasonable cost in terms of uh, the cause and effect. So do you, I mean, would you agree, Connor, that that something that goes to, it could be with well, pharma or? Pe people object. Know. If there's money, if they have to spend money, they object, right? So this stuff has to be paid for somewhere. So what we found uh, with our, our customers, because they're the manufacturers of the cooling units, they haven't really had this conversation, but most people take on the risk of maintaining that equipment. Um, and you know, it just sometimes doesn't occur to them that they can actually do this with IoT. And to be honest, it's not just IoT. It requires artificial intelligence or machine learning on top of the data. So it's, it's more than just putting a, a, you know, a connected thermostat, like a Nest thermostat inside your, your cooling unit. It has to be much more sophisticated. There has to be a way to log the transaction. So that brings blockchain into the story for a lot of these solutions. And it becomes something that they, you know, they just don't do because it's too complicated. Simplifying it for, for the market is actually the value that I think we bring to the table to make it easier for people to adopt. From our perspective, even reducing the cost to you know changing the capex expenditure uh, into an expense. Uh, the other th to pick up on what Mike was saying, especially in the pharma industry, they've been so regulated for so long they had to maintain this at whatever the cost was. It didn't matter. In a research lab, the traditional temperature monitoring things was a computer with some wires running in, and so a typical solution would be several hundred thousand dollars. We're now hundreds for the same, for a higher quality solution that's more flexible. And I think that's really the, to your point, is like, why wouldn't you do it at this price? And so I think it's, a, it's mark, that's why we have a marketing person, is to figure out the best way to get to the market and, and let people know that this low cost solution is either expected to exist. I would think the food, food industry, same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting because we'll do ROIs with customers on all of our business cases and almost always we can demonstrate that the price to monitor for ship, whether it's for cold chain or visibility, way makes the business case work. The problem you run into is there are a lot of, particularly a lot of these companies, there are a lot of ingrained manual processes that have existed for decades, and unless they have an innovation office or somebody that's really trying to drive change, the only change will be driven if there is a catastrophic failure, a loss of an entire load, a recall of a product. Um, we do tons of trials, but but food I think is a different area because there is so little, really there is so little traceability in parts of it that we start to see companies be super aggressive, particularly against the Amazons of the world and other people that are trying to be fresh. But the pharma space and, and companies like pharma that have been around for a while are really difficult to get them to kind of flip to full automation. There'll be parts, there'll be potentials, but to flip to full really takes some kind of a compelling event. In, in uh, I just add, you know, we've done work with some national food chains. Um, that have refrigerators that still have um, analog thermostats in the door and they keep, you know, 
product in there that if, if it's not kept cold, you will get sick. And of course, we've read about things in the news, right, yeah. where there's some kind of bacteria that kind of gets loose in a, a food chain because they're not taking the proper precautions. It's not necessarily refrigeration, but it's there. It's a risk. Okay, with that, I think uh, we have some time left. I want to open it up to see if we have any questions from anyone. Let me uh, walk this mic out. I think unless do we have another one? Here, I'll just walk out. Right. Um, so uh, I would like to touch upon the point uh, uh, where uh, now there are multiple uh, devices uh, or sensors which are deployed in an IoT system, specifically in the healthcare side. Uh, you see a lot of legacy devices uh, which uh, are currently present which I think Mike brought it out uh, correctly, where there's uh, analog systems still uh, in place. So uh, what do you guys do in terms of uh, handling their software upgrades, uh, doing security patch upgrades for these devices? Because uh, the reason I'm asking is because uh, we are working with the uh, Fortune 500 li uh, life sciences company, and currently they're facing this issue where they have a lot of uh, devices still working on Android 5.0 or something, and they're looking for some uh, security patch upgrade in those areas. So how do you mitigate uh, stuff like that? I'll give one example. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a lab at University of Pennsylvania that's called the Cooperative Human Tissue Network, and what they do is they arrange, it, let's say you're doing kidney research and you need some kidney samples, they'll arrange for you to get kidney samples from around the country. They'll let the word out to kidney uh, surgeons, and uh, if a patient's willing to do that, they'll take a small sample and then they'll send that and do that. So they're, they're shipping stuff. They have an extremely complex application they've built that's generically a laboratory information management system, but it also keeps track of the FedEx and the other people who guarantee cold shipments on dry ice. And it has to track it from beginning to end. So it's <laughs> the ultimate really cold chain uh, application. Well, that's been in development for about 14 years. And so they had an old, system uh, for temperature monitoring that was breaking down and so forth, and they got our system in. And what we had to do is enable them to use our API to pull all the temperature data to propagate that system. So I think that from that standpoint, it was pretty simple. We have a robust API that can get everything out. So in real time, they're getting the data from our system and propagating that. So they still, that portion of it, when it's, when it's stored at University of Pennsylvania in the freezers, they can prove that it was kept at the proper temperature the entire time. Um, so in our world, most of uh, the customers, the end customers who use the cooling systems um, don't have an app today to tell them what the temperature is, don't have any monitoring in place really, unless they've gone out and purchased something from a third party or it came somehow installed, they have very new equipment. So the onus of the software is shifting to who's gonna provide the service. So when the manufacturer of a cooling unit says, hey, we're gonna monitor it, we're gonna service it, it's their software, their system, and we provide an API as well. So if you have some type of building management system and you wanna scan it, um, and we're doing a project right now for a supermarket chain like that, um, where they're using different controllers uh, from Emerson um, and the data is being collected uh, through the thermostats and the cooling sensors that, uh, the thermostat sensors that we've installed, but we're sharing it back to the Emerson system. They're still not responsible for it. They're, 
the service is being provided by, by the manufacturer, but the supermarket supervisor still has a dashboard. And it's, that's being maintained by Emerson. So this point of integration is, is really through the APIs. And that's the easiest way to do it. Uh, we don't really get into going on-site and updating a, a particular facility software. It's, uh, it's very hard to do that. Most of our applications are 100% mobile, so they're either in the cab, the trailer, or the handheld. So because of technology refresh, by definition anyway, with cellular, um, the devices have intelligence. And so typically, if somebody's going through a technology refresh on the radio and they don't want to upgrade, like the Thermal King, the translators inside of the device will translate and then the microservices that we put in our crowd will do that adaptation of the data. Um, it's not ideal, um, but since most people are going through a pretty big forklift anyway, in terms of what they're doing Thanks. Uh, are there any other questions? Anyone else? Uh, I have a question. Uh, you had you brought up with you know the cellular. Obviously, a lot of these these are not the mobile units, uh, but units at stores, those types of things. How do you see the majority of the, the connectivity? Is the majority of it through cellular or use the, the Wi-Fi connectivity through local stores and? And, and why would that be? You know, because a lot of times the cellular is a better solution for most providers because you have a connection that's always there and on despite the, you know, the power situation at the store, despite, you know, some of the other network problems. Locally. Yeah, so th and there's a couple of challenges around this, right? One is assets in motion um, typically have to fall on some kind of cellular network or narrowband IRT or LoRa because of the coverage issues. When you start moving indoors, depending upon the type of environment you're in, because we do outfit cold storage rooms, right, because the tag moves in there, we'll use Wi-Fi backhaul on their proprietary network or some of the other um, kind of narrower band technologies will do a little bit more penetration. But really, we have to bifurcate the problem into what happens when it's mobile, and is it global mobile, right? So it, that asset, that, that thing could move anywhere in the world and have to have temperature control versus in a fixed location. But by far the biggest challenge is in interior cold rooms that we store into, and how do you back all that data out? Um, almost all of our clients, it's fixed. We don't have to worry about mobile. <laughs> so, and almost all these research institutions have existing uh, strong internet connection. So basically the question is, what's the best way to get the signals from the uh, sensors uh, to a collection point and up to the internet? Uh, we started off 13 years ago with uh, 802.15.4, which is the basis of Zigbee, Z-Wave, and stuff like that. When we did it, they were too immature to use. We rolled our own, we built our own. Uh, the problem is uh, 2.4 gigahertz is absorbed by water. And anytime you have concrete or cinder block, there's a lot of moisture in those walls and you're not going to penetrate many walls. So we've now, last couple of years, we've switched over to LoRa, dying 15 megahertz. It's got phenomenal penetration capabilities. We did the entire 22-building campus at the National Primate Center in Louisiana with one antenna. We ended up putting up two, so in case one of the buildings failed, we, we continue to be live. And that, that those uh, two antennas cover all 22 buildings, and there are freezers and refrigerators in all those buildings. So it not only 
does the campus, but it penetrates into the building. So that's, in our case, that was the right way to go. Um, so um, when we take responsibility or our clients take responsibility for servicing the cooling units and there's an insurance policy backing that up, we can't be dependent upon uh, the end user's site's Wi-Fi or network. Because if they shut it off and say, well, you let my cooler go down, you owe me a million dollars, you know, for who knows what reason, um, we, you know, it would put our, our clients in a bad position. So we can use uh, the internet connectivity, but we always have cellular backup. And more th often than not, we have multiple cellular backup because there's sometimes a lot of money on the line in these refrigerators. So we'll have Verizon, we'll have AT&T, somebody, so that, you know, if, if everything goes down, there's not much we can do. But in the event that, you know, the host internet goes down, there's still two different cellulars. Um, and then from, um, you know, the front hall capability, we're using LoRa 2. So we don't like doing Wi-Fi. There's too much Wi-Fi noise. Bluetooth, we've been at universities where students figure out how to hack the Bluetooth. It's just fun for them to try and do it. Uh, so LoRa seems to be a fairly good hardware token-based security system uh, for the front hall to get to a router, and then how we get up to the internet is, is as I described before. I think the other thing is a lot of the IT groups that we deal with, they already had um, backup. They usually have two or three internet connections plus mobile backup and so forth because you're right. They yeah. can't afford to have an outage. No, no. But we can never afford to be dependent on them, yeah. right? Not the insurance companies say no to that. <laughs> okay, well, uh, just one of the things I was kind of thinking about uh, as, as we were talking about specifically in, in pharma and then uh, in food in terms of tracking and being able to go back and track okay you know that this food source is packaged here was shipped to these locations are there any sort of efforts in place uh, that you've seen or around you know maybe FDA or other organizations saying hey we need to start looking into the effects of machine learning AI gathering data stopping problems earlier to, to maybe look at you know hey let's let's uh, let's make this more of a mandatory people around that. I mean, I know with HIPAA, the pharma, it's probably... Yeah, I think the problem you have in the food industry is some of these guys run on such tight margins that they really that they really struggle to find ways to do it, right? Um, machine learning and AI is really interesting, though, because a lot of times you can outfit the lane, right, and the type of carrier, and you can learn a lot by a smaller sample size and having to outfit every piece of product on there. But this is still a, an industry that's not very high-tech savvy. I mean, it just really isn't. And so when you start to introduce that in, you can go one of two directions. One is companies that are afraid to see the information, right, because then they'll have to deal with it, versus companies that want to get super proactive in it and then drive to higher quality. Yep. Those, those two dynamics in the industry definitely play yep. against each other in the food industry. I think what, one of the key things is the cost to the solution. So. With IoT, the cost has dropped dramatically, but you still, in food, you're going to go out to the farm and you get um, a couple pallets of uh, lettuce. What's the cost of that temperature tracking device once it's in a refrigerated truck? And the mobile connectivity all the way through to a warehouse and then into distribution centers and stuff like that, it's, it's the get driving that cost down into dollars or pennies a month or something, I think, is, is where you really need to get to for it to be ubiquitous. Like you said, the margins in farming are really small, really tight. The, the, the challenge is, um, is also 
when you go down to the pallets of lettuce at the farm, who, who's the worker? And what are their technical skills? Because, you know, IoT needs commissioning, right? We need to have a sense of what is it and where is it, and th there can be hiccups in that process. So it gets actually very expensive uh, as you get into the lower end of the labor pool uh, in terms of their technical savviness um, to be able to do these things, right? And having to send out other crews or have support people who can take a phone call makes the hidden cost of this right. higher. So I think that's still a challenge to overcome, but with regard to the FDA, uh, I mean, this is a bit subjective on my part, but they're behind the times, right? How many years? We're so far ahead of them technology-wise, I, I couldn't even imagine them contemplating what AI and machine learning could do. Um, I mean, we're dealing with a virus that's going around now and they can't even really get their hands around what to do, and yet people who work in machine learning and, and AI could, could tell you better. So um, it will eventually catch up, but not anytime soon that I can see. Well, I guess uh, we're almost out of time. I uh, want to thank our panelists for coming out. Uh, if anyone has any questions after this, I guess we're free to kind of reach out to you. Uh, so just want to give them a hand and thank them for coming out. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>